Welcome to the Brady Haywood Podcast, the podcast where we look at engineering failures and disasters. My name is Sean Brady. Most of us possess expertise in some form or another, regardless of the profession we're in. And most of us see this expertise as a good thing. But is it always a good thing? Or is it just possible that in some situations, expertise actually plays a role in causing failures? This podcast is a presentation I delivered to a crowd of about 550 delegates at the Queensland Mining Industry Health and Safety Conference in August 2016. The title of the presentation is Wedded to Our Tools, Why Expertise Can Hold Us Back. This podcast is accompanied by visuals, so look out for them on your phone when we're talking about puzzles and word games. Thank you, Russell. Um, I'm a structural engineer, but I'm not going to talk about structural engineering today at all. Uh, I get involved in forensics, so I investigate collapses and failures. And what you find when you start investigating collapses and failures is that people who have high levels of expertise can really screw up really badly. And we don't tend to think of that. We tend to think that failures happen to people who don't know what they're doing. But what we find when we look back through the history of failures, regardless of what industry we're in, is that many failures are caused by the best people with the best expertise. So today we're going to talk about expertise or the tools we all carry. It doesn't matter if you're a structural engineer, it doesn't matter what you do. At the end of the day, all of us in this room carry some level of expertise that we use to do our jobs. And we need it to do our jobs, so we can't get rid of it. The question we're really going to talk about this morning is, is there sometimes when it's simply not a good thing. I thought we'd start because a lot of us think of ourselves as very rational thinkers. We think we understand the world when we're presented with a set of problems, we're going to be able to understand how to solve those problems. So I thought we'd start with this puzzle. So just hands up anyone who's seen this before. Don't worry, I'm not going to pick on anyone. So about 30% of the room has seen it before, so if you guys can all be quiet for a moment. For everyone else, the question is, which line is longer, the top one or the bottom one? So stick your hand up if you think the top line is longer. That's a very good start. Uh, who thinks the bottom line is longer? Few people. So there's commitment issues in the room as well. Um, what's the answer? Yeah, they're both the same length. And if you're having trouble seeing that, we can add some visual aids, and you can see that both of them are exactly the same length. So far, so good. But here's when it gets really, really interesting. Keep your eyes on the screen. Once we take away the visual aids, it's like you've learned nothing. The top line looks shorter again. We can put it back, they look the same, you take it away, the top line looks shorter. And this is interesting because you know the lines are the same length, but you cannot train your eyes to see them as being the same length. You can't fix the lie that your eyes are telling you. You're only making this work because your eyes are seeing the top one is shorter, it's getting to your brain, your brain's saying, oh, hang on a minute, I know this, I've been caught out before, they're both the same length. Question is, if you can't train your eyes, the best sense you have to make the right decision, what happens when you're in really complicated situations where you have to use your brain and use your expertise? Because the issue is the greatest obstacle to knowledge is not ignorance. Many of us think that. It's the illusion of knowledge. We think we know what's happening in a situation, and we base all our rational decisions on that. So let's start with a story. 
And this story is going to start a, bit, a little bit weird. But we're going to go to the US, we're going to go to Montana, and we're going to go to 1949. And if you jump in a boat and you go down the Missouri River, you come to this valley called Mangok. And this valley should be completely unimportant except for something that happened in it that was very interesting in 1949. There was a lightning strike on the southern part of the valley. That's on the, the, the right-hand side. In some ponderosa pine and a fire started. It was the 4th of August, 1949. The following day, Harrison, a ranger, called in the fire and they sent in the smoke jumpers. Now these guys are the elite of the firefighting unit. They've been around for about nine years. These are the guys they sent into the wildfires early on when the fire was still small. They'd get it under control before it had turned into a very large fire. They were parachuted into the area so that you avoided having to track through forest. The way they fought the fire, for anyone who's unfamiliar with this, is they used a set of tools, they had a Pulowski axe, they had saws, they had shovels, and they'd essentially clear a fire line around the fire. Dig down the, all the vegetation, get a, about a meter wide strip running around the fire. That way you could control where the fire was going, drive it into some rocky ground, let it burn out. And these guys prided themselves on being really, really good at this. We're interested in 3.10 p.m., 5th of August 1949, the plane carrying the smoke jumpers is flying over Mangolk. It's a C-47. The winds are horrendous. This plane is getting bounced around. The smoke jumpers who are inside have all been vomiting. One of them actually doesn't jump. He goes back to the smoke jumper base at Missoula and, and resigns from the smoke jumpers. Lying on the floor, looking out through the open door of the plane, is the foreman of the smoke jumpers, Wagner Dodge. Lying beside him, looking out, is Earl Cooley. He's the spotter. Now, it's Cooley's job to find the right place to put the smoke jumpers down. There are 15 smoke jumpers behind Dodge. He's, he's 33 at the time. They're all in their 20s. This really was a young man's game. This is Sal and Rumsey. Sal was actually 17. He'd lied on his application form. He was underage. So these were, were young men in this plane. Cooley, the spotter, elbows Dodge, points to a, a place in the valley. Dodge nods his head, this'll work. Cooley calls the pilot, says they've got a spot. The pilot says we're going to be jumping from 2,000 feet instead of 1,200 feet because the winds are so bad. It's actually sucking us down into the, into the gulk when we pass over. Plane goes round for its, its, its um, pass over the valley. Dodge stands up, clips his static line into a rod above the door. The other end of that's connected to his parachute. It's going to open his parachute automatically when he jumps out. And the rest of the, the smoke jumpers do exactly the same. As they come in over the valley, Cooley is watching the landing spot, watching the flight speed, watching the wind speed, and he's going to give Dodge a tap on the back of his left calf. It's the signal for jumping out, because if you think about it, the engine noise is horrendous, the wind is roaring through this open door, you just can't talk to each other. Dodge feels the tap on his calf, he steps out into the air, five seconds later his uh, static line pulls taut and his parachute rips open, and he begins the one minute drop to the ground below. Three more men jump out, and the plane does another circle to drop another four men, another four, and finally the equipment. Now, on the way down to the ground, Dodge is thinking this is a 10 o'clock fire. What that means is by 10 a.m. the next morning, they'll have it under control. They'll fight it all night, get a fire line around it, burn it out, and then all they'll have to do is bury the stumps of trees that are still burning. They'll get control of this really, really quick, but not too quick, because you still want to get the overtime. But this is not a 10 o'clock fire. This is the uh, temperature records for St. Helena the, the, the day of the, the, day of, of the 5th. And you probably can't read that, but it's 36 degrees. This is the hottest day on record since they began taking records at this place. This sort of temperature in combination with the huge winds that were in the Gulf that day would really make firefighting impossible. 
Uh, by the time this fire was over, it would have burned 4,500 acres, and it would have taken the combined resources of 450 firefighters to get it under control. This was a real monster. But as Dodge landed in the gulp that day, he didn't know any of this. And we're not interested in what happened in the days after this. We're interested in a, a short 13-minute period for these men in the valley. So this is what it looks like. Uh, there's the Missouri River running down the side. This is Mangog here. So it's about two and a half miles long. It's a dry gog, so there's no stream in it. The southern part here is thickly wooded. It's got ponderosa pine, Douglas fir. The northern side is quite different. There's some patches of trees, but not a lot. But there's grass, chet grass, and it's about that high. So it's waist high. So you can imagine trying to run through that. And fire does very different things in these two environments. Fire in the ponderosa pine burns very, very hot, but moves very, very slowly. By contrast, fire in the grass doesn't burn that hot, still pretty hot, but it moves incredibly quickly. The men land around here at 4 p.m. Dodge is wrapping up his parachute where he hears a crash, and that's the radio. The parachute and the radio never opened and it burst itself on landing. From this point forward, the men really were on their own. They were dropped about half a mile from the fire. So the fire was down here on the southern slope. They gathered up their gear. They moved across the southern slope. Dodge told the men to eat something before they tackled this fire, and he went off to find Harrison. This was the ranger who'd called it in. And Harrison was up on the southern slope, and he was trying to dig a fire line to protect one of the picnic grounds. This is Harrison. And there was a book written about what happened in the, in the gulk that day by Norman McLean. And McLean said, Harrison, ironically, had switched to patrol duty and cleaning up picnic grounds to please his mother, who was afraid smoke jumping was too dangerous. Now here he was with Dodge, and he might as well have ran into General Custer and the 7th Cavalry on June 25th, 1876, on their way to the Little Bighorn. Bad things were going to happen in this valley today. They rejoined the crew, and at this point, Dodge is now not happy with this fire. He thinks this fire is going to have a tendency to boil up. And the last thing he wants is his crew on the southern side in the heavily wooded area if that happens. So he tells the crew to move down and across to the northern side of the valley. They start moving off. He eats something with Harrison. He gets more and more concerned with the fire. So he hurries up and he follows them. And around the point of the, the second dot here, he decides he wants these men out of the valley. They're going to head down that northern slope to the river, get out of it completely. As they're walking down the side of the valley, he can see black smoke starting to billow out of the trees over here. He can see tongues of flames starting to lick their way up through the trees. It's, it's really starting to be a dangerous situation. What he doesn't see is the spot fires that start at 5.30 on his side of the gulf. He can't see them because of the way the topography works. The ground just curves around. But what he does feel is the wind pick up. The wind got up to about 20, between 20 and 40 miles per hour, and it was essentially ripping up the valley in the men's direction. It's a further 15 minutes when Dodge sees the fire. And at that point, he gives the turnaround order. And they've got about 150 yard head start on the fire. Now, why did they turn around? What are they trying to do? Well, the key piece of training they had was there are a number of things you do if you think a fire is getting out of control. One of the ones, and really the only one open to them at this point, was you head to the ridge. You get to the top of the ridge and get into another valley. You go to the ridge because you've got a situation where there's got to be a lot less vegetation up there, so there's a lot less fuel for the fire. Plus, the winds tend to be very confused up there, so you have a chance of the fire getting confused and not chasing you as fast as it did. So the men were following their training. 5.45, and we'll keep an eye on the time, as the 13 minutes begin now. 
The problem was this wasn't an ordinary fire. It would take years to actually figure out what happened, but this was what they call a blow-up. So the fire was burning so hot, moving so fast, that it was consuming all the oxygen at ground level, which then was sucking in fresh air to replenish that oxygen, which in turn was fanning the flames. So you essentially were getting a tornado of fire that was starting to chase these men. By 5.53, eight minutes later, the men were average in a speed of about one mile per hour. Now, that doesn't sound very, very fast if you think you're running for your life. Now, they certainly weren't doing that at this point. They were quite calm. But what's amazing is they were making one mile per hour speed with all their packs on, all their gear, all their axes, all their tools. And they were running up a 76% slope. You know, it's incredible to think that you're knocking off one miles per hour up this slope. And remember, at the time, the grass was waist high that you were running through. But the problem was, while they were making one mile per hour, this fire had sped up. It had closed the gap to 100 yards, and it was now traveling at three miles per hour, and there was 20-foot high flames. It was bearing down on the men really, really aggressively. Dodge knew they were now in real trouble. There was no more firefighting to be done, so he ordered all the men to drop the tools get off the backpacks, throw off the axes. What's interesting is a large majority of them didn't drop the tools. They kept them. Rumsey, one of the guys we met earlier, he remembers pulling a shovel out of someone's hand because they looked ridiculous running up this slope still carrying a shovel. But when he pulled the shovel from the guy's hand, he looked around for a tree to rest it against. Harrison, the ranger, sat down with his backpack on on the slope. He never seemed to think that if he took his backpack off, he could run a hell of a lot faster. By 5.55, two minutes later, the crew had increased their speed to four miles per hour. But the fire really was, was winning now. Seven miles per hour, 30-foot high flames, and it was 300-foot thick. You could not move back through this fire in, in any way, shape, or form. They passed through a little grove of trees, and Dodge is in the lead. And he looks up at the ridge that they're trying to reach. And he is horrified, because it looks like this. There's this rock shelf running along the top. And in terms of getting a feeling of, of size of this, just have a look at the tree on the, the left-hand side. And that's where the men were. They were going to be coming up there trying to move through this rock shelf. So not only did they have to reach this ridge, but they had to find their way through some of the crevices. Some of them could be dead ends and they could get burned to death. This was a real problem. So Dodge does something totally crazy. Apparently the first time it's ever been done in the world in wild firefighting history. He pulls out a box of matches and he lights the grass in front of him and the fire rips up the slope and leaves a burnt patch. He then shouts at all the men who are just coming up behind him to jump in the burnt patch and lie down. Now, you have to remember at this point, these men are completely exhausted. You know, their lungs are burning. The heat from this fire is tremendous. There's 30-foot high flames. There's smoke everywhere. The noise of this fire is outrageous. You can't hear people clearly. They look at Dodge like he's lost his marbles. What the hell are you doing lighting another fire when there's one bearing down on top of us? Rumsey said he just couldn't get his head around what Dodge was actually doing. He was screaming at them to lie down, and then one of the men shouted, to hell with this, and they all ran by him one after the other, still trying to get to the ridge. Rumsey and Sal got there first. They were the youngest and the fastest. They got to a crevice. They debated about whether they'd jump in or not. Was it going to be a death trap, or could they get out? Rumsey remembers looking back down the slope. He sees Dodge tie his handkerchief around his, his face and lie down in the burnt area. And the fire just rolls straight over him. And then they watch in horror as the 60 seconds pass as the fire rolls over all the rest of the men trying to, to get up the slope. They jump into a crevice. 
There's a juniper bush there. Rumsey sits down beside the juniper bush. Sal says nothing. Rumsey seems to realize I'm going to die if I stay here. He gets back up. The two men make their way through the crevice, get down into the, 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 valley, next, the valley beside them. They start moving down the valley, and the fire literally rolls straight over the top and is chasing them down the other side. By good luck, they get to a, a, a rock patch, and they climb up on that, and the fire essentially burns around them, and they survive. Meanwhile, back in the Gulk, it takes five long minutes for the fire to burn over the top of Dodge. Two or three times during it, he's lifted off the ground by the updraft. He thinks he's going to be sucked up into it. When it passes, he gets up and he looks around. There's smoke everywhere, and the place looks like a moonscape. It is just totally burned. The only sound is the sound of trees exploding because the resin inside them has become superheated. Thirteen men died. Three got out alive. We know the time of that. You know, they turned around at 5.45. The time of that was between 5.55 and sort of 5.57. And we know this because Harrison was wearing a watch and the hands on the watch melted into the face. Now the question we have is, why did they not drop their tools? They weren't fighting fire anymore, they were never going to reach the ridge if they were carrying these tools. Why didn't they just throw them down and keep on running? Why hang on to them? And why didn't they use the escape fire? You know, their foreman was saying, get in here, and they all ran by him. In fact, they thought he was mad, and they kept going for the ridge. If we can answer these two questions, we can tell a lot about our expertise. Now, the easy thing, let's get the easy question out of the way first, which is, clearly these men weren't thinking at all. You know, they were running for their lives. The idea they could sit down and work out what they should or shouldn't have done seems meaningless. But we miss a sort of a learning opportunity if we stop there, because if we push a little bit further and say, is there something underlying going on here that caused the men to act like this? This is potentially much more interesting. To answer that question, we have to talk a little bit about psychology. And I promise I'll be as gentle as possible. Because what we're really talking about is priming. What's priming? Priming is when you, you give people information to basically control them subconsciously. So it's a well-known psychological thing. Perhaps the most you know, famous example of it was carried out in, the, in New York University on students who were aged between 18 and 22-year-olds. And this, was, this is important, this age gap. So what the uh, researchers did was they give all these students a bunch of word games. And they said, here is uh, five words make a four-word sentence out of it, and they had many of these different ones, and the, the students all did it individually. Uh, so what's the four-word sentence out of this? Oranges are from Florida. Okay? Straightforward, makes sense. What was interesting was they had two groups. They had a control group who was just given ordinary words, and they had another group, the test group, who were given sentences that had words like this. Forgetful, wrinkled, bald, Florida, bingo, gray. Now, what does that remind you of? Old people, absolutely. Congratulations. So it reminded them of old people. And they, so you had your control group who got old related words. You had the other group who hadn't. And the researchers basically said, OK, you're in room one. You've just finished this test. Hand in your papers. We want you to go down the hall. We want you to go into room two. And when you're in room two, you're going to do another experiment. So the students all did that. The thing was, the experiments didn't happen in room one or room two at all. The experiments happened in the hall. They timed how long it took the students to get from room one to room two. What do you think happened? The people who were exposed to the old related words walked slower to the other room than the people who weren't. And at this point, you're probably saying, that's absolute rubbish, Sean. I mean, that is just stupid. 
that you could prime people with words and they would behave essentially in an elderly fashion. But it's true, it's a repeatable experiment, they even call it the Florida effect, where you can affect people's ability to behave in a certain way and infect it subconsciously. So the question we'll start with now is, does that affect any of us? We're lovely, rational human beings, uh, we make rational decisions, but is there times when it is like there are some other people at the controls? So I thought we'd play some word games, and these are these remote associative tests that psychologists use, but they're really easy, so we'll not worry about that. But the key here is you've got three words, blue, knife, cottage. I want you to come up with another word that you can put with each of those three words to make sense. So we'll do the first one because it's easy. The answer is cheese. Blue cheese, cheese knife, cottage cheese. Have a go at this one. Safety, cushion, point. Pin, very good. Plate, broken shot. Very good. Stick, maker, point. Match, very good. Match stick, match maker, match point. This is a controversial one. Cane, daddy, plum. Sugar, sugar cane, sugar daddy, sugar plum. Now, I'm going to change it slightly. What we're going to do is I'm going to do exactly the same game, but I'm going to put up other words that are in brackets. Ignore the words completely. Ignore them. The same game, ignore the other words. Hearted, feet, bitter. Ooh, not doing so well now. That's just really hard, isn't it? Cold, that's good. Ball storm man. Snow, snowballs, no storms, some man. But what's happening here? Why? Why are we not getting them as quick as we did? Dark, shot, sun, glasses. And the reason why we're not getting them as quick is that the words in the brackets are negatively priming you. What they're doing is they're taking your thought process, which was nice and clean for the first bunch without the, the negative priming words, and what they're actually doing is they're setting your brain off on the wrong solution paths. They're sending you down directions that are not the right path, and once you go down those paths, you can't get back. Now, the interesting thing is that if we came back in two hours and did these again without the priming words, you'd nail them just like you did the first ones. And the reason why is you'd have time to forget the priming words. The priming words are the problem. Interestingly, this is why some of our best ideas come in the shower. Uh, you're at work, you're on site, you're in the office, you're trying to work out something, and you can't, and it's difficult, and it's hard, and then suddenly you're having a shower that night, or you're driving home, or you're doing something completely unrelated, and, and the answer just hits you. It's not necessarily that you've had more time to think about it, it's you've got some distance from the things that were negatively priming you. All the stuff that's irrelevant, you forgot about, and you get to focus on what's really important. And what they started to do in the 90s in University of Pittsburgh is they say, okay, we know priming exists, we know we can negatively prime people, but is there a situation where the knowledge we already possess can ne negatively prime us? Can our expertise, which we think is a, a, is a very good thing, can it actually slow us down? Can it be a problem? Can it negatively prime them? So how do you test for that? Well, the way they did it was they got a control group of people, and they got people who knew a lot about baseball. And rather than putting in negatively priming words, what they did was they designed the tests in such a way that if you had baseball knowledge, once you started to do the test, you'd use that baseball knowledge and it would set you on the wrong path. So they designed it to set you on the wrong path. The theory being that if, if expertise could hold you back, if your knowledge could hold you back and negatively prime you, they, the baseball subjects would do terrible on the tests. And this is the way it worked. Strike, white, medal. This is a typical one they had. What's the answer? Out. 
So the, the answer is gold. And this is really, I mean, I've cheated here because what I've done is I've already primed you to think about uh, baseball. So you're viewing this through a baseball context. The answer is gold. Strike gold, white gold, gold medal. But what happens in most people's head in the room is to go strike out. Baseball term, white out, that makes sense. And then you go middle out, oh, that's not right. Now the interesting thing that happens here, it's almost impossible to get back out of this. It's impossible to sort of clear your head of the baseball knowledge and look at this with fresh eyes. So this is the way the test was set up. Um, they sent them in, they totted up all the answers. Uh, who do you think did best? The control group. The baseball subjects did absolutely appallingly because they retrieved their baseball knowledge. Then what they said was, well, hang on, let's redo the test, but let's warn the baseball people not to use their baseball knowledge. So we'll tell them, this test is set up in a way that if you have baseball knowledge and you use it, you will do really badly. Don't use it. How do you think these, this group did? Yep, just as bad as the group that got no warning. So not only does expertise hold you back sometimes, but it also is subconscious and it also is automatic. We're not able to switch off retrieving it. We just can't help it. And that's exactly what was happening on the northern slope of Mangog in 1949. The men were trained to use their tools, and they were trained to run for the ridge when a fire was after them. They could no sooner drop their tools, both physical tools and their mental tools about how they did their job, than the baseball subjects could drop their baseball knowledge. When we get stressed, we go right back to our expertise, and we use it whether it's appropriate to use it or not. We use it even if all the facts before us are saying to us that it's inappropriate to apply this expertise. But it even goes deeper than, than that sort of rational thing. It goes to an emotional level. And this is from Norman McLean, again, the guy who wrote the book on what happened in Mangove. When a firefighter is told to drop his firefighting tools, he is told to forget he is a firefighter and run for his life. And I think all of us possess expertise, many of us define ourselves by that expertise. You know, I think of myself as a structural engineer, and I'm sure many people do about whatever you do. And it's really hard to accept that that expertise is now useless for the current situation you're in. Most of us would rather cling on to it and hang on to it, even if it's giving us results that don't work. It's a little bit like Chris was talking about the insanity earlier. We keep doing it. And they call this the law of the instrument. When all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And you know, think of some meetings you're in, there's always one guy who's got the same solution for every single problem, because that's their hammer. And we love running around with our own particular hammers, looking for nails to hit, and hitting things that aren't even nails. And the problem is that when we rely on this expertise to such a high degree, we ignore the facts. We can't tell when a situation is no longer appropriate for the application of that expertise, even though the facts are screaming at us. The ridge was too far away from the men. The tools are too heavy. You still can't let it go. And it's interesting. How do you try and deal with this? Well, it's really, really difficult to deal with because we're trained to rely on our expertise and our systems. The way the, the firefighters deal with this particular issue is, is interesting. They had many fatalities, over 20 fatalities in the 1990s and 2000s with firefighters. Um, many of them were very close to safe zones um, before they were burned to death and most of them were still carrying heavy backpacks and chainsaws. 
So they were not dropping their tools many, many decades after mangroves. So how do you tackle this? Well, the first thing they did was they told people in their training, you know, you can run much faster without your tools. If you need to run, drop your tools and run. They found that didn't work. People still hung on to their tools. What they ended up having to do was they had to train the men to run with their tools and run without their tools and time them and show them, hey, look, you can run much faster without your tools. Now, that seems really stupid and trivial, but what you're actually doing is you're embedding the ability to run without your tools in their expertise. You're, in other words, making another tool for them to use in the situation if they need it. Um, and this is called comparison. You know, will I run with my tools or without my tools? Awareness. I can run faster without my tools, but I need my tools to firefight. Which am I doing, firefighting or running? And then refinement is the ability to make that decision when you're under pressure. So we all need to go back over our own expertise and ask ourselves, why do I really believe that? Why have I always done it this way? Is there other ways? Is there advantages or disadvantages to that? And how would I use that? Because the reality is when stress hits, we tend to default to what we, we know. What Dodge did was, was totally crazy, though. How do we explain what he did? I mean, he invented a brand new tool, the escape fire at the time. How did he do that? And what's interesting is I think many of us in our lives, in obviously much simpler circumstances than being chased by wildfire, have come up with novel solutions when our backs have been really against the wall. And the psychologists have a name for it. They call it creative desperation. And the way creative desperation works is your back is so close to the wall, you have nowhere else to go. And like Dodge, you realize that everything you know, all your expertise, the way you tackle things, the way you do things, is absolutely useless for the situation you're in. He had dropped his physical tools at 5.53. At 5.55, he dropped his mental ones. No use anymore. An incredibly brave thing to do. When you drop your tools, what are you left with? Well, you're left with common sense and the facts. Most of us don't like that sort of thing. It feels very exposed to, to drop back to common sense and the facts. And he was left with a simple decision. I can't reach the ridge. Expertise doesn't matter anymore. But the fire needs fuel, and I can get rid of that. And that's what he did. The problem was that for the rest of the guys, they couldn't process what he was doing because it wasn't in their expertise. And of course, now the whole concept of an escape fire is within the firefighter's expertise, and they can call on that tool and use it when they need to. I couldn't let it go without one structural engineering example. Um, this happens to every profession, doctors, business people, law, um, engineers. This is the Hartford Civic Center Stadium, designed in, and built in the early 70s. A huge structure. Um, it's about 100 meters by 100 meters in plan. It's 20 meters up in the air, and it seats 10,000 people. Um, what was, what was interesting about this structure was that it was built on the ground, so it was a space frame, built on the ground, assembled, and then lifted up into the air to, on top of only four columns, which were near each of the corners. When the contractor built it, he went back to the, uh, the designer and said, I think we've got a problem. This thing is sagging much more than your calculations are suggesting. You're missing something. And the engineer says, well, I'll have a look at the calculations. He has a look at the calculations. He comes back and he says, no, it's fine. It's absolutely fine. Carry on. The contractor lifts it up into the air 20 meters, puts it on top of the columns, and then comes back to the engineer again and said, oh, this thing is really bending and deflecting. I mean, it's, it's deflecting twice as much as your calculations are saying. So are you sure you've got them right? And the engineer goes, absolutely, I've got them right. I've checked them again. The guy comes to install the fascia board, this whole piece up here on the top. And he gets back to the design engineer and he says, I think you've got a problem. He said, your structure is so twisted that the brackets that I'm meant to be attaching this fascia to don't line up. They're way out of whack. 
And the engineer said, oh, don't be ridiculous. The calculations are fine. We've checked them. Um, we'll just go and weld some more brackets on and fit the thing up. And that's exactly what the guy did. Over the course of this structure's life, two members of the public went to the city of Hartford and they said, we're actually distressed by the level of, of, of distortion and twisting there is in this structure. And it was quite visual. You could see it. And the city of Hartford went back to, to the engineers and said, you know, we've got a lot of people very concerned about this structure. And you guessed that the, the, the engineer said, well, we've checked the calculations and they're fine. Fast forward to 1978 and it starts to snow. And on this particular night, this was the biggest snowfall they've had since the structure was built. It's still only half the design load, so there should have been no problem at all. And at 19 minutes past four in the morning, this thing lets go. Over 1,200 tons of steel fell. Um, what was really disturbing about it was six hours earlier, there'd been a basketball game and there had been 5,000 people sitting below this. It was an incredible near miss. Now, there's lots of lessons we could take from this failure, but the question that we're really interested in today is, why would all the evidence saying there was something wrong with this structure, did the designer insist they were still right? Any ideas? Timing's important, early 70s. Why was the engineer so confident Computers, absolutely. So what happened was this was you know, the, the, the beginning of, of, of computers ending up in the workplace. The engineers, they won the job. They went back to the city of Hartford and they said, if you buy us this super whiz-bang computer, we will be able to save you huge money on your structure. And the city of Hartford said, that's a wonderful idea, and they bought them the computer. And the, the engineers were so convinced of the accuracy of the computer that they simply wanted to ignore all the evidence that said it was wrong. The computer became part of this expertise, and they trusted it the same way as they would trust their own structural engineering. And computers are like any systems. They're really good, but they fundamentally make us stupider. And if we don't manage that, we end up in trouble. The, the sole purpose, and Chris mentioned this area, is computers and, and systems are there to help us do our job. They're not replacing us doing the job, but many of us treat them like that. Before we leave the story, computers have enabled people to make more mistakes faster than almost any invention in history, with the possible exception of tequila and handguns. <laughs> Bear that in mind whenever you're using a computer. At the end of the day, with the expertise we possess, we, we will face situations where it doesn't apply, we'll be under pressure. And if we don't think about our expertise and what it really means to us and how we really use it, we won't be like Dodge. We won't be able to see the facts for what they are. We won't be able to understand the facts for what they mean and understand whether our expertise is appropriate or not. Instead, we're gonna be like 13 doomed men running up a hill trying to get to a ridge that's simply out of reach. Because in pursuit of knowledge, every day something is acquired. In pursuit of wisdom, every day something is dropped. We drop what we know is not appropriate. That's real wisdom. Thank you very much.